Today he goes by the name of Chad O. Jackson, and uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ask you the question up front, like who is Chad O. Jackson, and um, just give us a brief right. synopsis of like what you stand for and what you've done and what you plan to do. Well, uh, thank you for having me uh, on the podcast. Um, as you said, I'm Chad O. Jackson. And um, I guess first and foremost, I am a born again follower of Christ. Um, and that's basically what I stand for. Right. And I talk a lot about about I talk a lot about about <laughs> I talk a lot about politics and culture. And, you know, which is interesting because I guess the way that I kind of came into the public eye was through politics. Um, I was part of a film that was released in 2020 called um Uncle Tom, uh, the oral history of the American black conservative, uh, which was executive produced by Larry Elder. Oh, wow. I um, didn't know that. Yeah. Um, after the release of that film, um, I helped co-produce part two, which talks a lot about the civil rights movement and how the civil rights movement was not what many of us think it is. I would venture to say what most of us think it is. Mm. Um, it was a movement that helped expand the power of the government at the expense of Americans' freedom, and it did it in the name of race, which was a sensationalized topic at the time. So it was very easy for people to go along with it instead of taking a step back and asking themselves, first of all, is this much ado about nothing? And second of all, what kind of power and control will we be ceding to the government if we were to go the way of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement? And so I'll talk a lot about that. And um, what I find is that these things are necessary to talk about because to the extent that we continue to believe history as it's laid out by our public schools, by our celebrity class and so-called expert class and government bureaucrats and this and the third, if we continue to believe the version of history as they put it out there, then we will continue to move closer and closer to a kind of tyrannical globalist state. Mm -hmm. And I believe uh, firmly in the autonomy of the individual, the autonomy of the family. I think that uh, what the founding fathers in America managed to do and managed to put together um, as far as the constitution is concerned, uh, was a work of art, mm. was a work of art when it comes to human liberty, when it comes to the power of the citizen, uh, the sovereignty of the municipality and the township and the state, um, the low, you know, the small state, um, what they, what they labored over, I think was actually quite genius. And to the extent that we get further and further away from that, we are losing our grip on what true liberty is mm. on this side of heaven. And so, again, to the extent that we believe the version of history as these enemies of, of uh, 
of freedom. I, I, I would, I, yeah, I'll put it that way. Uh, as they lay it out, um, we will continue to uh, give way to social justice movements, to the rise of demagogue politicians, mm. and all the rest, which, in my opinion, helps to bring us closer and closer to that uh, global tyranny uh, that I'm that I'm referring to. So I know that said a lot, but <laughs> these are the kind of things that I talk about and um, dip and dabble in. Right. So you think that the civil rights movement or social justice is a ploy for for the government to gain more power over oh, the population? Absolutely. And it's not just the civil rights movement. Like I said, it's social justice movements in general. Mm. When you look at women's suffrage or, you know, what some scholars call first wave feminism. Right. When you look at second wave feminism. When you look at the, the civil rights movement, when you look at the LGBT movement, when you look at Black Lives Matter, all of these are social justice movements. And you look at who financially backs and supports these so-called movements and their connections with government. You'll find that, it, you know, it all kind of works in this kind of roundabout way mm -hmm. because these so-called activists, they get the people riled up. They pinch grievances and appeal to sensationalism. So they can build numbers because there's strength in numbers. Right. And these people take to the streets and demand that something be done about what they're told is a crisis or is chaos. And they'll and here along comes a politician and says, if you vote for me, I have the answers to fix what you say is broken. And that answer is almost always more government. And mm. so this is the way that these things work. It's 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 agitation to the highest degree. Um, you get people who are already doing well for themselves by virtue of their own merit. And you get some agitator who comes in, mucks it up, get the people riled up, get the people discontent, dissatisfied, taken to the streets and demanding that the government expands itself. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the civil rights movement is very much a part of that. So you don't think. And I want to expound on that, too, but you don't think the civil rights movement was necessary for black people to reach the point in American society that they have today? You think we could no, have got here without, without that? No. The, so, so Thomas Sowell talks a lot about this. Um, I've managed to verify this with my own research. Uh, my good friend, Chuck Littleton, um, who um, is somebody in my opinion, who's up and coming um, one of the great researchers of our time. Um, of course, had he written a book by now, I think that more people would know his name, but he hasn't written anything yet, but he's getting there. Okay. Um, he's a family man. Mm -hmm. Um, there, there have been others, uh, G Edward Griffin. There's a lot of people who have uh, been sounding the alarm on what the civil rights movement actually was, including the late Barry Goldwater, the Senator out of Arizona, mm -hmm. uh, to the extent that he tried to sound the alarm on what the civil rights movement actually was. He was called a ultra right conservative and a white supremacist and all the things. Mm. Uh, never mind the fact that he voted for every civil rights act uh, prior to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which, in my opinion, was unconstitutional. But to your question as to was it necessary, the answer is no. And the reason the answer is no is because when it comes to relations between black and white prior to the 1960s, there were huge strides toward progress. Um, and this didn't include the NAACP or any government um, organization or any activist organization. The reason why blacks and whites were 
gradually getting along was because of the free market commerce mm. ah. to the extent that blacks were doing well in business and um and conducting themselves in, in an upright manner they were naturally coming to contact with white folks through commerce that familiarity was built within that context and a lot of these so-called jim crow laws were being repealed on the basis that people were finding that they were unfeasible how mm. can we keep these things up it's actually costing us more money both blacks and whites were finding this to be true and as a result these laws were beginning to be repealed and not only that if you if you go even further back what you'll find is that a lot of these jim crow laws that existed in the south were not something that white people did to black folks black leaders and white leaders both came together and together they decided to impose and implement the separation laws which later became known as jim crow laws mm. but they wanted separation black leaders as well as white leaders because what they found is that if we want our people to succeed then they would have to do so competing with one another not competing with other cultures and wow. so people don't look at the true history of separation and you know we look at it as a racist thing that was done to black folks not realizing that you know when you look at um, the progress of blacks economically uh familially um in, in various different facets the black uh, black success was on an upward trajectory from the end of slavery to about the 1960s and people who were leading the charge with this progress were the likes of Booker T Washington mm. who is famous for many things but for also for also the saying of casting down your bucket where you are don't wait for the white man don't wait for this don't wait for that don't wait for legislation to pass it's on you to utilize the skills that you have the talent that you have whatever that may be and hone it and um you know come into yourself get your legs under you um and to the extent that you do that don't worry about what white people do or aren't doing or think or don't think about you um people will learn to respect you when you first have respect for yourself and this was actually true mm. this was actually proven to be true uh he started something called the negro business league uh which included pharmacists doctors dentists contractors tradesmen bankers all sorts of of black professionals and this existed not only in the south but in the north too uh philip payton jr for example he was a uh, stevedore who lived in florida mm -hmm. and off time he would read old eastman kodak uh camera manuals and he taught himself to be a photographer mm. and no no I'm, I'm thinking of uh some someone else um i forget his name but anyway he moved to north carolina and was able to uh be the photographer in this small black town in north carolina and um and he took pictures of of uh of all sorts of black folks for a little over 20 years and you see these beautiful black and white photos of the people who lived in this town this was like a lower middle and in, you know middle income town and the people looked like they had respect and dignity about them unlike what you see coming out of BET and other you know so-called black programs today right but Philip Payton Jr this is someone else he was also a part of of uh Booker T Washington's Negro Business League. He um he was a, he was actually a realtor. 
uh, he moved to New York um, at a time when Harlem was predominantly white. He bought a building there in Harlem, uh, an apartment building, moved black tenants into it and began to buy even more buildings there in Harlem and other black realtors began to do the same thing. Right. And so you had all these black professionals moving to Harlem um, on the back of the lessons taught to them by the likes of Booker T. Washington. And so it wasn't this waiting for the government, waiting for uh, the white man to do anything for them. They were actually putting their hand to the plow and making things happen. Right. When you get to the 1960s with the Civil Rights Act and Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King's rhetoric is very much different from Booker T. Washington, where Booker T. Washington said, cast down your bucket where you are. Martin Luther King is painting a picture of two Americas. What did he say? He said that whites live on a land of plenty flowing with milk and honey right. and black men live on a lonely island of despair where we can't find jobs. We can't find this. He painted a very bleak and miserable picture of the black man. Now, what happens psychologically? to the man who's being told by their so-called race leader that you're, you're downtrodden, you're, you, you can't get this, you can't get that. Well, that begins to settle within you a spirit of bitterness, a spirit of despair to where if your dad was a, a, a local electrician who everybody called black or white, you, you see what your dad is doing circa 1960. Mm -hmm. But you see this Negro leader, this Negro pastor on television saying, you know, we shall overcome and we're living in despair. And you see all your friends at school going to the marches and going to the sit-ins and going to this and going to that. All of a sudden, your dad, the electrician, looks like a square. And so by the time the 1970s come along, you don't want to carry on the family business that your dad set up, that your dad established. Right. You're going to go to the offset of the civil rights movement, which is the black power movement. And so you give in to this kind of this pro-black identity where, where you insist on asserting your identity through picketing and protesting and, and all the things as opposed to making your way with your hand at the plow, like your dad and granddad and great granddad did before you. Oh, and wow. so what we learned to do and starting in the sixties, was to be self-assertive, not by anything we're doing with our feet, but rather what we're putting on a picket sign. Mm. That's, that's, that's our new kind of self-assertion. And so when you look at the fact that over the course of the early to mid 20th century, all the strides that blacks were made, were making in terms of being able to buy land and buy properties, what you see in the 80s going into the 90s is these houses are being sold and liquidated and our parents are going on vacation. I was I'm a millennial. I was born in 1990. Mm -hmm. Our parents were liquidating those assets, going on vacation, going on cruises, living their best life. And they left nothing to our generation. Mm. So now you have people in our generation saying, where is my generational wealth? Mm. Oh, slavery that's because that's where my generational wealth 400 went, years ago <laughs> i mean yeah, 400 so years ago lost, 400 years we lost track of our history and um i think the civil rights movement it gives us this kind of excuse to complain about slavery complain about things that uh that don't really affect us in any real way right uh, and we don't look at um how we lost track 
of where we were culturally and how we were able to make those strides to begin with. We were on an upward trajectory. The 60s came. We went on a rapid decline. And now we're complaining about slavery, something that has nothing to do with any any of where we are today. Right, right, right. I mean, yeah, you said a mouthful there, but um, I feel like how I feel about slavery is like, like you said, it doesn't really doesn't really affect my life today and like what I decide to do in my everyday life. Nobody's refusing, you know, my my presence in life because, oh, you know, you were a slave hundreds of years ago. You know, like it doesn't I don't nobody. It doesn't affect my life. And I know it doesn't affect the majority of like black people's lives. But there's this victimhood mentality that I guess you saying started around the 60s with uh, all the, you know, civil rights movement and stuff like that. But I never really even started. It started. But I never really because I grew up when I grew up like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were like hailed as like heroes to the black community. You know what I'm saying? And all the all the literature, all the, you know, depictions of them on television and documentaries and stuff like that. It was like, you know, the how it was painted was that, you know, even at that time, black people were still severely downtrodden. You know, you see the the videos of people getting hosed and getting dogs sicked on them. And, you know, it would make you think, you know, lynchings was still going on or something like that at this time. And, but then you, then I would, but I would always kind of wonder like, how did Martin Luther King get such a prestigious position and why he, why he don't look like he look like you right now You're with, the suit, the, with the suit on, you know, you better be and, careful asking those questions. <laughs> he got money. You know what I'm saying? He like y'all on TV, but everybody else is like still, you know, in the trenches as a black community and stuff. And I guess you, I guess you yeah, that's what I'm saying. And that's where, but the, right. the, the depiction, the picture that they put out to everybody was so, uh, it was just one perspective of maybe some black people, maybe who was maybe it was some instances like today, like let's draw a correlation to like police brutality today. Mm-hmm. Like I think it was Candace Owens that pointed this out. I think in, I think last year or in 2020 or something or the year where they were acting like, or it, it was a perception of so much police brutality going on. So many black right. people are getting killed by the police. And I think that year, maybe 15 pe- black people were unlawfully shot by police. Right. And um, in that same year, 19 people were struck by lightning. So it was like more likely to get struck by lightning than to right. be a black person getting shot by the police in that year and probably right. other years too. But the, the perception that the media put out and that everybody who has the inclination for the cops to be racist, they didn't want to do no research. They didn't want to hear nothing to the contrary of the police are racist. They killing us indiscriminately just because we black. Blase, blase, blase. And that's where all the Black Lives Matter movements came from. Even over here, I went to a Black Lives Matter protest in Germany with like 
a hundred thousand people there or something like that in Nuremberg, wow. Germany. Me, my wife, and my newborn son were there, you know, and it was mostly, mostly white people who was, you know, in relationships okay. with black people and stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I seen this kind of firsthand, and then the more I look into that whole situation, it was like they want you to believe that George Floyd was a martyr and. <laughs> You know, right. he's someone to, yeah. you know, be the the centerpiece of, like, the new, you know, movement that's saying Black Lives Matter. But even when I was at the protest and, going, and all that was happening, I was kind of like, I don't need this to tell me my life matters and stuff, you know, just because yeah. this one instance of some dude questionably dying in a in a police situation where he if you watch the longer right. video he resisted arrest for a long time was obviously on right. something told the people he said he was gonna die he probably knew he was gonna have a heart attack because he was on um what's that drug that kills a lot of people who yeah. do coke fentanyl or whatever and mm-hmm. you know it's quite it's debatable whether his no, he, was on, he was actually on two drugs right he was on fentanyl and meth he had both meth and fentanyl in this. Right. System. And he asked, that they tried to put him in the car and they, he asked to be put on the ground. He, he asked to be laid out right. on the ground like that. But, um, I'm kind of losing my point, but, yeah. um, I can see what, what you're saying because even while that was going on, it was seemingly the right thing to do to be a part of this movement because, because that happened. But when you really look when at you the scope, the question, just let me say this one more thing. When you really look at the scope yeah. of um, the police and you got to think of, I tell people, you got to think of like how many police there are, how many people there are, how many instances mm-hmm. police have to interject into things that happen in society and do their job a year, you know, mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of interactions with people or maybe even more, but you know, they're not going to be perfect and things are going to happen and things are going to go awry. You know, like people are going to, and sometimes somebody going to get shot. Sometimes bad things are going to happen, you know, in the, in the bigger scope of things, you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean just because you put a magnifying glass on these few instances, that doesn't necessarily mean that the totality of the police force is like this racist entity that's only out to right. kill black people, you know, when they get unruly in a police situation. Mm-hmm. But what, what were you going to say? No, I mean, you, you, you said a lot too. And um, everything that you said was, was on point. Um, I mean, when it comes to what, it, when it comes to the areas that the police have to patrol, um, the fact is a city that has high crime rates or high potential for crime, um, if that city's leadership is smart and wise, then they will necessarily put more police presence in areas that tend to be more hostile, uh, more violent, this, that, and a third. And so to the extent that something pops off, um, you know, I'm actually quite impressed that the numbers are what they are in terms of the number of of black folks who are shot by the police Mm -hmm. because it could be a lot more if you have people who didn't know what they were doing if you have police officers who who didn't know what they were doing right and so you know let's say we go the route of black lives matter let's say we give them what they want and pull all the police 
out of these high crime areas. What then will happen? Of course, you will see more homicide. You will see more of a kind of anarchy um, where women, children, and elderly people are not safe because they will get caught in the crossfires of gang violence. Mm. And that, I mean, we all know what's going on to the extent that you pull the police out, the gangs will fill that vacuum Mm. and will be more present, will be more intimidating, more domineering, the second, the third. And so people aren't thinking about these things practically. Um, Just from a practical, I'm not even asking you to be wise. I'm asking you to be practical. And, uh, and and that's, that's, you know, that's the reality of it. When you look at, um, and to go back to what you were talking about earlier, um, and, and what I was talking about with the whole civil rights thing, mm-hmm. um, there, there's a, you know, back when there was a Soviet union, there was an agency within the Soviet union called Agiprop. Um, now Agiprop is a, is a merging together of two words, agitation and propaganda. Mm. Agiprop was responsible for a lot of agitation that took place in the United States, including the burning down of black churches. Oh, uh, to the extent that they burned down black churches, that they were doing a lot of rabble rousing in the South. Um, naturally, the story or the headline read "Clan burns down church." Clan does this. Clan does X. Clan does Y. Clan does Z. Now, I found evidence of the fact that a lot of clan happenings were influenced. By the communists and not only that you have black pastors quote-unquote who are burning down their own churches and saying the clan did it now why would they do such a thing well the answer to that question is the same reason why in 2020 in 2021 in 2022 and 2023 the media would have a vested interest in making you think that police brutality against blacks is an epidemic or is on the rise namely that they understand that this creates the exact climate that they wish to have where people uh are are desperate for the government to step in and do something about it and again it all leads back to the same thing all the rivers flow to the same ocean which is the desire to expand the role of the government Mm. Uh, for the government to just become all the more expansive, all the more powerful. Um, and But hey, at least we're safer as a society. <laughs> as we, at least we're safer as a people. And we've gotten rid of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and racism and homophobia and sexism and all the things. And so, and so these social justice movements will always, always tell you that a certain thing is on the rise, a certain thing is an epidemic or this chaos is out of control. This crisis is out of control. Something must be done about it. Right. And again, the only thing that we know how to do in the West when it comes to something needing to be done is vesting the power in the government and in the bureaucracies to do that. Something that we say needs to be done. We can't of course point to like, why is it that they were never able to find and, and, and except in, in some cases we were never able to find, these arsons who were burning down these churches and doing all these things, right. even to the extent that you, you, I mean, you call, um, you know, Derek Chauvin, a modern day Klansman or a modern day lyncher mm. because he killed George Floyd only, you know, to, to find out that that's actually not true. He right. didn't kill George Floyd. Mm. George Floyd killed George Floyd. Um, 
But, you know, even someone like even the people that we call racist today, uh, you actually look at the totality of what happened in these instances and you'll find that, okay, the police officer may have done something. And I'm not talking about George Floyd at this point. I'm talking about in general. Mm-hmm. Um, take Mike Brown, for example. The police officer may have done something or made a step that wasn't the smartest step at the time. And it resulted in this and it, re- it resulted in that. But even if even if we can say that it was a police officer's fault that this kid or this black man or whomever died, can we then say definitively that his doing that was motivated by racism? Exactly. Nobody that's, asks. That's always these the go-to though. That's, if it's a black and white thing, right. they go straight to racism. Mm-hmm. And and the last point I'll make is this: on the civil rights matter, of course, I have a lot to say about it, but I'll, I'll end it by saying this because I'm sure there's other things you want to get to. Um, Harry Belafonte was a good friend of Martin Luther King's. Um, now, uh, Harry Belafonte died a year or two ago. He was well into his 90s. Now, here's a man, like I said, well into his 90s. So he was, he, he's been around for a very long time. He's been around at the peak of civil rights and all these things. When I tell you that three years ago he was being interviewed, and three years ago, 2020, he was being interviewed and they were talking about racism. Mm-hmm. And he said out of his own mouth that right now, never mind the 1960s, never mind the 1950s, never mind any of that. Right now is the most racist I've ever seen in America. Wow. Now, if you're a thinking person, if you're a thinking person and you listen to him say that again, he was involved in the civil rights activity of the 1960s. If you're a thinking person like myself who was born in the 1990s and you went to school, you you watched Roots, you learned about black history, you learned about all this stuff, you've seen the black and white footage that you talked about with the hoses and the dogs and the, you know, this and that and the third. Of course, you're thinking that, wow, I'm glad I wasn't born back then. I'm glad I didn't have to put up with that. How bad that must have been. That was so racist and we made so much progress. Of course, you're thinking that. Mm-hmm. So to hear... Harry Belafonte, and he wasn't a dementia patient when he said this. He was speaking to the camera or or to the interviewer as clearly as I'm speaking to you now. Right. So for him to say that right now is more racist than any other point in American history, Mm. that makes me call cap on everything else that you say. That makes (laughs) me call nonsense on everything else. Your like everything that I learned. All those dominoes can come crashing down when I hear a man like that saying that, because to me, it's like if I can't trust you as a black man in America who knows that it's not a racist country, who has never experienced any racism. So for you to say that right now is racist, how can I believe you about what you say about the 1960s? So again, a lot of the stuff that they were saying, like, oh, another church burning, another this, another that. We didn't even do the due diligence to see w- who was actually behind all these things. We mm-hmm. just kind of take it at face value and think to ourselves, man, it must have been so hard to be a black person. And not only that, it wasn't as if you were a random black person in 1963 on your way to church. And all of a sudden, here comes a police officer with a dog. And here comes the fire department with some hoses and they're well, uh, uh, ready to plow you down. That's not what happened. This was a strategic uh, uh, tactic 
that was conducted by the civil rights leaders uh, who got the uh, uh, example of how to do this from Soviet Union agitprop uh, uh, tactics, mm -hmm. where they strategically went into these areas. They didn't pull permits. They gathered together uh, what they called um, freedom riders. These were youngsters who came, who were bused down from the north, and also youngsters, uh, uh, high school age and middle school age kids uh, in the south, got them into the streets and marched because they understood in the age of motion picture and 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 news media that to the extent that you can capture with a camera in HD, dogs, hoses, to the extent that you can get that on camera and put that on the front page of the newspaper, that will create this kind of stimuli and this kind of reaction and all who sees it. And you'll have more and more people joining the ranks of the civil rights movement, begging uh, Lyndon Johnson to pass legislation, which, you know, they did the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which Title II and Title VII um, gives the government intrusive powers into how, into how small businesses ran in the United States. And mm. that was the whole, that was the whole goal. And so again, um, it wasn't as if, you know, dogs and hoses were being sicked on black people who were just on their way to church trying to mind their own business. They used the same hoses and dogs on predominantly white organizations prior to the 1960s. Hmm. I found footage of them sicking dogs and hoses on predominantly white unions who were protesting and picketing and striking and all the things who did so uh, and gathered in large uh, intersect or intersections and in cities without pulling permits. To the extent that the police come and try to disperse the crowd and you won't move, you won't budge, you necessarily have to use force to disperse the crowd. And Whoa. so, again, people aren't thinking about these things logically because we're so sensationalized by race. I never heard it put like that before, because if you in, if you watch any movie, especially like a racially charged movie or something about that time period, they make it seem like. Like you said, you could just be a black dude walking down the street or going to the gas station or something. Uh-oh, the police pulled up. They finna harass me for no reason. What you doing over there, boy? What you doing, boy? Get over here, boy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then but they but just... how many older black folks have you talked... Movies aside, how many older black folks have you talked to who gave you an example of something like that happening to them? I mean, none really. I have a lot of older black people in my in my family. My my dad, he, because I kind of grew up on a farm in Alabama, and uh, so you better than anybody should should have stories. Kinda like my dad. He was raised by my great uh grand. He was he was raised by his grandfather, which is my great grandfather, which and he was half Jewish and half black. His name mm. was, his name was Steinberg and he took his, he took his wife's uh, last name to escape Jewish perse persecution in, in Alabama at the time. That's a whole nother story, but they were uh, sharecroppers. And uh, I guess the farm was, the farm was given to my grandfather after um, whoever owned it before. And my mom, she she also grew up on like a sharecropping farm. My mom, my mom was like one of the first uh, kids to be integrated into white schools in Alabama and stuff. Um, but even they don't, even my mom had like a white best friend growing up. And um, 
they haven't really told me. I mean, if you, they are from that generation, so they will tell me that it was, racism was worse back then, but they've never really told me, or we, we haven't had those conversations to where they've told me some crazy racist thing that happened to them back then, you know? And even me thinking back to like my childhood, the only racist thing I can think of was, um, was, I kind of got chased by some some white guys in a pickup truck. It was super <laughs> stereotypical racist shit, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I was kind of walking down the street. Yeah, kind. I was kind of walking down the street, and they like rolled by in a big um, big pickup truck, and they were like waving shotguns and stuff. But you know, they didn't they didn't come for me or whatever. But I just happened to be there, and then they were like kind of like saying stuff to me as they rolled by. So little me, I picked up a rock and like threw it at the truck. <laughs> Cause I'm like, fuck y'all, you know? And then they, they turned the truck around and they came back and I was like, Oh, I had to like run in the woods. And then, then all the niggers and all the stuff came out, you know what I'm saying? But shouldn't have thrown that rock. I shouldn't have thrown the rock. You know, I should have just let them go about their business. <laughs> but other than they probably, that, they probably uh, just got off or get got done with a hunting trip, and who knows? Proud they about was excited, and then and... I threw a rock at him and stuff. So <laughs> you yeah, messed around, threw a rock at him. Yeah, I just, you know. But other than that, you know, it was only, and I went to like an all black school where a few white people went, but I was cool with the white people. But my community was black. I come from a really small town in Alabama. The population was like under 200 or something like that. You know, I didn't really interact with um, many people outside of my race until I got out of Alabama and went to the military and stuff like that. And um, how, um, how were your uh, teachers at your school? Were they also black or were they white or they were mostly, they were mostly white. I had a few black, um, black teachers though in like elementary school. And they were and and what what uh what year you're thirty seven so that would have been the late eighties. Well, I was born in, I was born in in eighty six, so it was like okay mm, ninety early. You really went to high school in the early nineties. Yeah, yeah. Or I'm sorry, elementary school in the early nineties. Yeah, black black teachers okay, so. were were well, they were good though. They were super strict, but even back then they didn't like it. Wasn't like pushing. Uh, this second class citizen uh, idea on me because I was black and stuff like that. They were hard. They were hard on on me because you know we were both the same color and stuff. And because they wanted, I the sentiment I got was because they wanted the best for me, not because they thought mm-hmm. it was gonna be harder on me in society. Because I was. Did black. you ever get the sense that your that your teachers were racist? Uh, you're at a predominantly black school and your teachers were were mostly white. Did you ever get the sense that they because you just said that you didn't think they looked down on you. Did you ha- ever get the sense that they were racist at all? No, never. I never, um, okay. that just never crossed my mind at the time. And it wasn't so with pushed. With that being said, with that being said, if it were today, um, given George Floyd, given Black Lives Matter, everything that has transpired over the last three, uh, three years, mm-hmm. if you were in that, in, in that same context today, if you were a youngster going to these schools, 
predominantly black school, uh, predominantly white teachers, do you think that you would think that they were racist? Probably, yeah. I would scrutinize so everything they did to me as mm-hmm. like an act of uh, racism, probably. And that that's kind of what I'm getting at, is that it's not so much that uh, you know, racism is is haunting is hunting down every uh, black person across the uh, the scope of our country. Mm-hmm. That's not it at all at all. Um, and and it it goes back to what we were talking about earlier before you know we we started with the podcast, which is that we are conditioned. We are conditioned to think a certain way. We are conditioned to uh, land on a certain side of the spectrum politically. Mm-hmm. That is, most of us are conditioned to be liberal in how we approach politics. We are conditioned, if you're black, to think that everything is racist, to think that if you are born with dark colored skin, then you are automatically at a disadvantage because that means you have to work harder, that the white person is automatically going to be treated better, this, that, and the third. And so and so we're conditioned to be this way, and nobody stops to to question that and Instead, we just kind of go along with it because it's virtuous to go along with it. Right. You'll be looked at as a good person, as a virtuous person to uh, be a crusader against racism, to be an anti-racist, as it were. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it, how do we and these are the kind of questions that I ask myself, how do we break those spells? Um, because it, all this stuff isn't happening by accident. It's not you know, it's not an accident that Black Lives Matter got the the prestige and the prominence that it got in 2020. It wasn't an accident that it's not an accident that the media again uh, goes on and on and on about police brutality and all the things. None of this stuff is an accident. It's all meant and geared toward a certain end goal. And so for, for someone like me to speak out and say, well, actually, you know, last I checked, you know, I'm, I'm a, uh, uh, a heavily melanated man mm-hmm. and I'm not experiencing any of the stuff that you're talking about. Um, it, it becomes necessary for me to do that because I pretty much like my Liberty. I pretty much like my freedom and I see what's going on. And I, and I fear that, um, to the extent that more and more people who look like me give in to the spell, allow themselves to be emotionalized and sensationalized into believing something that's not true. The more that happens, the more their ranks and their numbers grow and they will have all the more permission to usurp my freedom and my liberty. And I don't want that to happen. I don't want that to happen for my sake. I don't want that to happen for my children's sake. And it's to that extent that I try to speak out against it. So you say all of this is kind of like a ploy for more government. Mm -hmm. So in your like perfect world or your what's your idea of like what the government should do like what are we paying tax dollars for if the government doesn't like you know make laws and make us adhere to them and, and things like that i'm not saying that the government shouldn't exist i'm not an anarchist um, i'm not saying that the government shouldn't have um, um certain powers uh, certain requisite powers. Um, I believe like John Jay, one of the founding fathers who uh, wrote a number of the Federalist Papers, that wherever you go in the world, 
wherever you go in the world, you will you will have government. Government is inevitable. It's it's inescapable. Mm. Uh, The question is, what kind of government will we have? Uh, That's a question that we get to answer in a republic, in a democratic republic, in a constitutional republic. Mm-hmm. Uh, my concern is that we uh, underutilize that here in the United States. Not only do we underutilize it, we don't even know how to use it. We don't even know how the government is supposed to function. Uh, I guess which gets to your question, which is, you know, how do I believe the government should function? I believe that the federal government's power should be extremely limited. There's no reason why they should have all of these uh, departments. Uh, we shouldn't have a Department of Education. We shouldn't have like, a Department of Energy. We shouldn't have any of these departments. Those things should be left up to the private sector. Mm. Um, at the same time that the government's expanding, you have a systematic, deliberate um, uh, agenda to weaken men, to weaken masculinity. And so we as men don't believe in ourselves. We don't believe in ourselves to educate our children. We don't believe in ourselves to protect our food. Uh, We don't believe in ourselves to build our infrastructure and create peace and stability in our land. And to the extent that those things go left undone, the government comes along and usurps the power to control those things. And so, again, when you look at social justice movements, they're driven by fear. Right. Fear is a debilitating feeling when you're debilitated and you distrust your ability to provide for yourself. You distrust your ability to step up to the plate and rise to the occasion. You will vest and punt that responsibility elsewhere to someone else. And so again, feminism, as I mentioned earlier, is meant to emasculate society. So men aren't what they used to be. We just aren't. And so, again, because of this, we're all, you know, that's another reason as to why we're investing a lot of power and control to the government. And so, you know, in, in the perfect world, we'll have a small government with very limited powers. We wouldn't be taxed uh, out the wazoo like we are. Mm. We wouldn't have a income tax. It's, it's absurd to me that our income is taxed. This is money that you worked hard for. This is money that you got out of bed early, went to work, broke your back to scratch the earth to make a living. So you can bring home funds to make sure that your your dwelling is paid for, to make sure you got food on your table, to make sure that your kids are cared for and properly educated. You you did that. The government didn't do that. The government didn't do that. You did that. So the fact that the government has first dibs to your paycheck is absurd. Before you even see the check, the government has already gotten it out, gotten money out of it. And then we have the socialist, the socialist uh, um, program called Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare. I mean, again, if as a man and as people, it's your responsibility to take care of your health. It just is. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, we don't need medicaid and medicare to be uh to be um cared for medically uh there's doctors and 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 doctor firms or i'm sorry uh there there's clinics and and doctors who are willing to work with you and come up with a family plan and all the things to make sure that you know your family's health needs are are provided 
Okay. Um, the fact that, you know, we use, we kind of, um, centralize all of this power into the government, um, makes it to where we're not able to be creative with how we go about making sure that these needs are met. I feel that whenever we operate on a peer to peer basis, instead of assuming that the default should always be a kind of governmental answer to the questions that we have, um, that, uh, takes away the effectiveness and the uh it, it takes away the effectiveness of the goods and services that we would otherwise have um again if if we are doing things more on a peer to peer basis it becomes more personal it becomes more effective uh relationships are built um you know this that and a third but when we kind of depersonalize it and make everything a kind of top-down government-led thing mm-hmm. um, that that makes it all the more, um, um, I guess, subpar. I mean, if you go to any kind of government-ran facility, whether it's to get your driver's license or whatever, the people who work at these places are miserable. <laughs> they treat you like crap, like you're just a number. Yeah. Whereas if you go to a mom-and-pop shop to order a sandwich, hey, how are you doing? What's your name? Where are you from? You know what I mean? It's, it's more personal mm-hmm. um and and again i feel like a lot of the goods and services that we have here in the united states would be better off left to the private sector as opposed to the government hmm. i mean i feel you um in germany they i think you said taxes out the wazoo they mm-hmm. <laughs> i pay like i pay like 20 percent uh oh wow of my income in taxes. And this year I hit a new tax bracket. So I had to pay taxes twice for wow. the, for the year prior. And they predicted my next year of income and I had to pay taxes on that. <laughs> so I'm like, but, um, but here's the thing though, the difference between a Germany and a United States is that German Germany for the most part is a homogenous country. Uh, these are people with, you know, for the most part, with a shared history that goes back hundreds of years, thousands of years. And in some cases, depending yeah. on which European country you're talking about. Yeah. And so it's much easier to pull off a kind of socialist program with very little pushback in a pretty much homogenous, small European country, as opposed to a very uh, diverse country like the United States. I'm, and I'm not saying diverse merely, you know, in terms of ethnicity or race, I'm talking about diversity in terms of culture, in terms of thought, in terms of political thought, this, that, and a third, we don't agree on anything here in the United States. And so again, this is yet another reason as to why the government should be small in a place like the United States. Uh, because, you know, again, to the extent that you expand the, the, the government, the government is now imposing a kind of uniform culture, a uniform uh, identity on on the people mm-hmm. who should otherwise be diverse, as, as far as I'm concerned. Um, think of it in the same way of like as like a church. A church is made up of people who go there voluntarily. Nobody forces them. Nobody put a gun to their head and say, go to church. Mm-hmm. They go there voluntarily. They pay tithes. They do potlucks. They share and they gather and they do the things. You can call it a kind of micro socialist thing. Right. Um, although I hate the word socialism, I hate the word communism. But in terms of how they operate, this is a kind of 
socialist thing in terms of its uh, the fact that you have people sharing and, and doing all the things. Um, but again, that's on a voluntary basis. You can't do it on a mandatory basis because you will get pushback. You will get discontent. You will get uh, unrest and all the things uh, to the extent you try to force that on people. Right. Um, and so this is what these people are trying to do. They're trying to force it on a wide scale on people who will certainly react and certainly uh, be unhappy with it. Again, this is the reason why you you you, you leave government small and, and the places where needs uh, come up, those needs should be met on a peer-to-peer basis in the in the private sector. We shouldn't be taxing people at the wazoo to pay for things that their ethics don't agree with. Right. I don't agree with abortion. I don't agree with um, the public school system. I don't agree with a lot of the things that we have here in the United States. And so the fact that I am being taxed to pay for those things that I disagree with, uh, I believe is unethical. Let I mean, my homeschool, uh, my children are homeschooled. We have four children. Um, I pay out of my own pocket for the curriculum that my children are being educated with. It's a classical curriculum. Mm. Um, so, so I'm in a sense of being double taxed because I'm paying for their education. But at the same time, through my property taxes, I'm also having to pay for the local school that we don't utilize. Mm. And so again, to the extent that you centralize these powers and you force the people to pay for them, whether they use them or not, um, I think is a backward system that needs reform. Wow. Yeah, I never heard it quite put like that. Because even because you and you mentioned the uh, church is like a voluntary uh, kind of micro socialistic system or whatever, because you can, you know, you can go if you want to go. And if you can be there and if you decide not to pay tithes, you don't necessarily have to. So, right. That makes it kind of a better, better thing. But here in Germany, if you're if you go to church they it's a t- it's a church tax like they take it out of your check it's not a voluntary thing so a lot of people left the oh, church wow. in germany because they already getting getting taxed crazy and like if you if you I, don't belong do if you don't belong to like the catholic church system over here you don't even you don't even get a burial plot like your family has to like pay extra money to like find somewhere to bury you or you have to be like I think cremation. You can be, you can get cremated, or hmm. you have to like rejoin the church and like pay up. <laughs> you know, it's like it's kind of a crazy thing. <laughs> but um, yeah, I see what you're saying about the government and like um, pretty much the policing of of ideas is kind of mm-hmm. what I'm kind of stuck on and kind of what got me interested in podcasting because I noticed like a lot. Of course, like the mainstream media, they all have a script. I've seen this one video where they're like, they're like all, it's like a hundred stations saying the exact same script verbatim, word for word. I I can't remember what exactly they're like announcing or whatever, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's all, all of these small town news organizations were a part of the same like uh, entity. And they all mm-hmm. disseminated the same exact script for them to all read on the same day at the same time. And they put all the, it was like a hundred little video, little expanding videos yeah. as the video go on. And I was like, whoa. So it's not a surprise to me that the mainstream media is controlled by whoever is controlled by. And they all have yeah. a certain agenda to push. They have a certain way they word things. They, um, 
they they want a certain idea to be the prevalent one in society and if you disseminate from that one especially if you work for them like if you if you're a journalist or a talking head on one of these shows if you disseminate from uh, you know what they want you to say, then you're out of it. You fired. You canceled. Your life yeah. is over. Maybe you get exactly. a, a Me Too charge or something like that. You know, <laughs> they're gonna get rid of you. You know, it's right. it's yeah. obviously a orchestrated um thing and like getting away from you know the whole black thing. But like like you said, other civil rights movements. Like now, it's like um. Like you were saying, the whole feminization of men thing and like mm-hmm. going away from masculinity. Masculinity is toxic. Uh, right. f- women should be in charge of everything. Um, you know, the pay the pay gap lie. Um, um, you, you can go on and on with it, you know, and it's all it's pushed in the mainstream media It's pushed in, in liberal podcasts It's pushed on. You know, TikTok is very liberal mm-hmm. and um, it's pushed in the movies and um, the right. TV shows the most. Like, I can't watch something now without getting completely taken out of whatever story is being told by some trans person c- popping up in the scene. And, yeah, you know, they right. just randomly have to be told that they're beautiful and they're special in the moment, you know. And I'm like, why did they put this right here? I don't care. Like, whatever right. trans people exist. And I, I, I turn the channel and I watch something else. And it might be the same trans person in this movie doing the same thing, <laughs> replacing a, a, a long beloved character. And now it's a dude in a dress, you know, a la uh, the Cinderella movie. You know, they got this, this black gay dude in a dress and he's like Cinderella and it's supposed to be a kids movie and you, you, you're supposed to tell me that this is not a ploy to influence the way children think about this subject it's mm-hmm. not just it's not just that you didn't just put that there and it's been like videos of Disney employees like higher up employees saying oh my not so secret gay agenda you know I want to put this <laughs> in as many movies as I possibly can. And, you know, and I think people don't, people don't realize um, how susceptible to persuasion and to propaganda they are, even as adults, you know, they don't like everything you watch is, it can sway how you think, even down to Mm -hmm. a commercial, uh, Right. Um, advertisement they are trying to convince you to buy this product and get you familiar with it to where the next time you see it and it's on sale you probably buy it because you saw that ad you know right but and but people it's like this administration with joe biden he sat down with the trans person uh dylan mulvaney in the Mm-hmm. in the white house why why is he sitting down with this with this man who thinks he's a woman i think he was on this i don't know 70th day of being a woman at the time and <laughs> you feel the need to bring this person to the white house tiktok feels the need to boost his account to where he got like eight million followers 
I think he just won the Woman of the Year award. He was on the Forbes list. Like all this imagery, even to adults, but especially to kids. Well, hold on. I have to correct you though. He okay. didn't say he's a woman. He said he said he's a girl. Right. Girlhood was is the is this the is a grown man who's saying he's a girl. Right. But, right. But that's but supposed yeah, to be celebrated. Yeah. You know. Right. Even Disney, they lost, and and all the companies are doing it at their detriment because they're losing, they're hemorrhaging money um, because they're more concerned with this agenda and this message of inclusion. So, you know, so, you know, that they call well, the thing it, about it is they're making money with they, their companies and stuff. The, the, the thing about it, though, is like whenever they do it, and, and this is, I mean, they have, you know, millions of dollars. So it's not they they don't care about losing a couple of customers here and there or losing money. You know, whenever they, you know, oh, we lost 60 million dollars over the course of this month, you'll have, you know, uh, conservative commentators who make videos and memes making fun at Bud Light and other companies. Oh, y'all lost y'all lost 60 million dollars. I bet you learned learn your lesson now. Mm. Meanwhile, the executives at Bud Light, they, they're getting the last laugh because here's the thing. They're not thinking about you and me whenever they put these commercials out there and all these things. Disney, they're not thinking about you and me, a couple of 30-year-olds. They're thinking about your children. What they're doing is called normalization. Right. To the extent that you could pump the media airwaves with pro-trans, pro-LGBT propaganda, they are laying the groundwork for future generations because to the extent that your little your your children's you know little mental clouds is being pumped with the normalization of lgbt they will learn to think that this is normal that this is acceptable that this is moral and you're actually immoral if you challenge it right that's my point because to to the extent that you would, that you challenge it you're you're challenging the humanity of this trans person. So this is the, they're conditioning children to, to be accepting of it. So they're not so much thinking of, of folks like myself or you, they're thinking about the younger generation. They're trying to normalize the climate to, to be acceptable of this kind of thinking. Right. That's exactly my point and what I was getting at because, but I don't know because like I have two smaller kids, you know, my son is actually in a Disney movie. Hmm. He, um, when he was two, my son and my daughter are actually in the same, uh, Disney movie. It was, um, cause my, my wife is, is a model here in Germany and hmm. she got him signed up to 50 agencies. My, my daughter been modeling since she was like five days old or something like that. Oh, wow. Um, the movie that they're in is kind of like the story of um, a black, um, a, a mixed race black man in Germany and how he like fought racism in Germany after the fall of the Berlin Wall and stuff. And my son plays his his son and my daughter plays like the newborn version of him or whatever. But um, other than that, but when I was on set, even though it was no 
I don't think it w- was any like homosexual agenda in this movie. Uh, but it was like LGBTQ stuff all over the set. Like everywhere you went, it was like rainbows and like stuff like that. But to my point, um, me having a, a small son, right? Mm-hmm. And understanding that everything that he's seeing and interacting with in these very formative years of who he's going to be when he grows up, you know, I'm very, I try to be very cognizant of like what he watches and, um, you know, cause I think when he first started kind of talking and he realized that, you know, it's two kind of human beings, like a boy and a girl. Right. And at first he was just kind of calling, he was around more girls in his uh, daycare. So he was just kind of calling everybody he saw a girl because that was the only word he could say. He could he didn't know how to say boy in German yet. So he was just kind of calling everybody a girl, even little boys. I would read, read him books. And, you know, mm-hmm. every freak figure was a female figure to him. And I had to explain to him, like, no, this is a girl and this is a boy. Girls usually have longer hair. They have dresses and skirts on and blah, blah, blah. At least in the book, that's how you can tell them apart. And I could see the right. wheels turning in his head like, okay. And I would tell him, like, you're a boy. Because he would point at me like, uh, me, girl? Not, and not thinking, <laughs> like, right. not knowing. He just didn't know. And I had to, like, literally yeah. explain it to him, like, no, you're a boy. Like your, like your papa and your mama's a girl, blah, 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 blah. And if I didn't do that as a parent in this you know, day and age, maybe somebody else would have explained that to him, or maybe he just would have came to the conclusion that there's no difference between the two by, you know, everything he sees in society these days, you know, he would have got confused and, you know, next thing, you know, he would have got into some peer, some kind of friend group in school that was confused too. And, I think it's a snowball. Like they're trying to sell that, you know, you can be born this way. But I think, in my opinion, we're the sum total of our like experiences and the things we see mm-hmm. and the decisions we make while like navigating, you know, life and stuff like that. I don't I don't think we're born with yeah. an idea or or sexual orientation, but we can be swayed either way, especially when we were kids. So um, I think you're right about people like Disney, you know, putting these ideas into these children's movies, trying to make them normal for the newer generations. So it perpetuates um, throughout society in that way, because people like you and me, we already see what's going on and we will, you know, I'm a talking head. I'll make a, a video calling them out on stuff like that. Cause I can, I can see what they're doing, but if I was born up in it and indoctrinated through that, that thinking and ideology, then I might agree with it. And I might want to shun anybody who doesn't agree with it and call them a horrible person. Because like you said, they're trying to like discount trans lives or, mm-hmm. you know, gay people lives. But in actuality, if most of society and most of society agreed with this, and if most of society was gay, where would we be 
as a society, you know, like what would life look like? Yeah. No, I mean, I think what you said, though, is key, uh, namely that, you know, you are actually being a father to your son and you're actually educating your son and leading him in the direction that he should go. Uh, That will look different if you just put your child in front of Nickelodeon and Disney and PBS and and let these television programs raise your, raise your son. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and unfortunately there's a lot of parents who do that. Right. I mean, if you watch PBS or, or what is it? PBS kids with all the shows that they have on there, um, whether it be Sesame street or whatever the case may be, there's a lot of political propaganda that is being pushed in these shows. Uh, and once again, it, it's kind of laying a ground work or building a framework that is very leftist in essence. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I use the word leftist for lack of a better word. I think it's something actually more sinister than, than that. But again, I mean, to me, secular leftism is to the West as Islam is to the Middle East. Mm. That is to say, it is the it is the religion of the state that you are indoctrinated into. Right. That you are born and bred into. And so it takes intentional parenting to uh, to counteract everything that the surrounding culture is trying to push you toward. And that takes, you know, that like I said, it takes intentional parenthood and it also takes self-control and discipline and self-respect and all the things. And that goes for any culture that goes for anywhere in the world, wherever you find yourself, you have to be principled. Mm. And and I think everything that you just explained as far as, you know, your, your, um, conversations with your son, uh, is an example of that, of of what we should be as men and, 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 and fathers. Mm. And so as far as like where we would, where we would be as a society, if the LGBT, had their way, which I think is your question. Um, I, I think we're, I think we're seeing that. I think we are witnessing that firsthand. When you look at Hollywood circa 1970 in the 1970s, a lot of these, um, Hollywood, um, studios mm-hmm. uh, began to be infiltrated with, um, they call themselves gay lib activists, gay liberation activists. And, um, it, it, these people have been around for, for a long time. So it's not anything new. I say the 1970s, but it dates back even further than that. I mean, you could look at examples of it during the Harlem Renaissance. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know, but Langston Hughes was a homosexual. Um, a lot of your favorite, uh, artists during the Harlem Renaissance were, were either gay or bisexual. Um, and, um, but that, that's, that's a different story for a different time. Right. Um, but, but anyway, like as you move from the turn of the 20th century to the 1970s, you see this kind of increase in homosexual representation in media. And then in the 1970s, a lot of, of gay lib activists began to, uh, buy up or infiltrate a lot of the studios in Hollywood at the same time they were rebelling against the war, the Vietnam war. Mm. And they were saying things like, um, masculinity is not portrayed and going to Vietnam and beating up people. 
masculinity instead is portrayed by sharing your feelings. And so the, hmm. um, the, the make love, gay not libera- war and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Make love, not war. Hmm. Gay liberation coincided with second wave feminism at the same time that you're empowering. Uh, and I use that word empowering very loosely. They're not so much empowering as much as they are indoctrinating, but at the same time that you're indoctrinating women to uh, be anti-marriage, to be pro-indulgence, to be sluts, so on and so forth. At the same time that that's happening, you have the gay liberation movement, which is attacking masculinity in the nuclear family. And they began to push this propaganda in films and in television in the 1970s. You get into the 80s and the 90s and you get the birth of the sitcom. Well, the sitcoms have been around already, but you you get more and more sitcoms. Mm-hmm. You get uh, shows like Married with Children that depicts the dad as a kind of lazy couch potato who's the butt of every joke. Um, again, you have this kind of systematic attack on masculinity. And so the fact is, unfortunately, in the West, identity is shaped by entertainment. Right. A lot of people, a lot of trends are led by entertainment. This is why a lot of time and money is ex- ex- expensed and in um, the arts and, and media because they understand that to the extent that you see a celebrity with this bag or with this uh, brand, people will go out and buy that bag and that brand. Mm. And so if they can do that with with um, with material, with with things that you wear they can also do that with identities and how you identify. Mm. And so, again, normalization of lifestyles. Uh, the show Martin. Martin is a staple, um, not only in, in black culture, but I, I know a lot of white people who watch the show Martin. But here you had a, show. <laughs> a young man who was unmarried to his girlfriend and they lived together and, you know, they were shacking up, as the old folks would say. Um Again, shows like this, living single, like they, they kind of normalized a this kind of loose, like untraditional uh, familial setting. Um, mm. And as a result, you have more people who are shacking up. And again, like it, 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 I know some might argue, well, that's a chicken or egg kind of argument. But the thing is, at the same time that you have shows like this becoming popular, you have what follows less people getting married. You know what I mean? So it's, again, we, we take our cues from entertainment and television. Mm-hmm. And so to the question of what will society look like if LGBT were to have their way, I think we're seeing that unfold before our very eyes. Right. I definitely agree with that. But let me ask you, like. Because, like, would you say. No alternative lifestyle should be portrayed in media. Or should it be, yeah, I was just, let's just stick with the first question. Should you, would you say that a gay person or a trans person shouldn't be inserted into a story or like a degenerate depiction of a black person? Like, should that just not be portrayed? I'm not saying that it shouldn't be portrayed. If, if I were king of America, <laughs> um, I wouldn't, you know. I wouldn't make it illegal for these images to be portrayed. You know, people are going to do because because for me to, to, to say that would be to go against exactly what I said earlier, which is we should have small government. Mm-hmm. You, you understand what I'm saying? Um, 
what I'm simply acknowledging is the fact that it's all moving in wrong in one direction. It's not a matter of we have one gay person here and one gay person there in this movie and in that movie. It's all moving in one direction. You know what I mean? It, 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 the pervasivity of it and the um, inundation of it um, is moving in one direction, which is clear signs of normalization. Right. And so, again, they are shaping society through entertainment on uh, at a, you know after what they wish it to look like. And again, this is why I said the LGBT and, 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 you know, this kind of do what thou wilt secularism is to the West, what Islam is to the Middle East. It, it is the kind of religion of the land, as it were. Mm-hmm. And so my, my rallying cry isn't against Hollywood to stop depicting this stuff. My rallying cry is for parents to be more intentional, much like what you said earlier, with what it is they are showing their children because it falls on like the raising of your child falls on you, not Disney, not Hollywood. Hollywood's going to do what Hollywood does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for me, I think it's it's kind of cowardice to spend all my time rallying against Hollywood and what they're doing. There's a difference between rallying what they're doing and and and, and simply acknowledging what they're doing. Um, I'm acknowledging what they're doing, but my end goal is to parents be mindful of what it is you're putting in front of your children um, to the extent that your children see something because they, they're bound to see something because, again, it's everywhere. It's yeah. on you to to provide the necessary commentary, uh, to provide the necessary guidance. And if need be, be counteractive from what the society is actively doing is, you know, we have to be counteractive to their activity mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that we are shaping our children and moving them in, in in the right direction, as opposed to allowing them to be sunk, you know, sucked into the Hollywood agenda. Mm. And so, again, my message is more for people uh, than entities, if that makes sense. Right. I got you. But at the same time, I feel like. Sure, you can make sure your kid got a good foundation, the right foundation, can think for themselves and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. it's so pervasive and it's so everywhere and. Your kid might be the only kid in his friend group with common sense, you know, and all the all the rest of them, you know, uh, going to drag queen shows on the weekend with their white liberal moms and stuff, you know, and which makes common sense not so common in that case. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It, it's definitely not common yeah. anymore. But I'm saying like, and <laughs> all kids, I think, at a certain point, are going to rebel against their 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 um. Their parents, I think it's pretty. I would common. have to push back a little, uh, against that a little bit, though, because okay. I used to think that too. I would have to push back against that because I see firsthand a difference between kids who grow up in households with parents who demonstrate exactly what I'm talking about versus kids who are growing up in the public school system where they are being exposed to all of this stimuli and all of this information uh, that's unchecked. There's, there's no balance. There's no, there's no check. It's just, it's just indulgence and, and complete exposure. Uh, I grew up in the public school system and uh, yeah, I did go through a rebellious phase, but when I tell you that I know dozens of kids who were homeschooled, 
or who grew up in an environment with parents who were loving and intentional and present and all the things. And they never had those kids never had a rebellious phase. Even after going off to college, they didn't they they weren't so easily dragged into the, you know, the uh, proverbial college lifestyle of the partying and the drinking and then just basically losing yourself because they had a solid foundation uh, on which they grew. And so, again, I don't I don't think it's inevitable that the kid is going to rebel. Um, Again, we are autonomous individuals and who knows which direction we're going to go, uh, regardless of where we grew up or what kind of parents we had. I mean, I know some some uh, families where the parents are very affluent upper middle class, if not all out wealthy, and their kids turned out to be useless. Right. Um, but um, again, you, you even look at their background and even though the, the parents gave them everything they want, made sure that they had good grades, all the things you, you understand that they were grooming their kids to have uh, monetary and status success in their future. And so they weren't so much pouring values Mm. and integrity in their kids as much as they were pouring status into their kids and it and it backfired because the kid they they grew to believe well i just want to be loved and i want to feel like i belong but i feel like i can't i'm not accepted by you unless i get into the ivy league school or unless i make this grade or unless i do this that and the other so you're putting these kind of of uh of burdens on the children trying to make them live up to your idea of success. And so mm-hmm. we have to be careful of that as parents. Uh, again, I feel like it's more important to nurture your kids, to foster them, to uh, encourage their creativity, uh, but to set a solid foundation of values um, and integrity um, that whenever they are faced with temptation, even the temptation to rebel, they will remember those values at the very least to where even if they indulge or capitulate, they they have a threshold where, okay, I can't go that far. I have to lean back on my values kind right. of thing. So I think it's easy to say like, oh, well, all kids go through a rebellious phase. But I think to say that is to speak from a place of, you know, people in our age group of, of, of millennials where all we know is a public school upbringing mm-hmm. where, you know, we go to a school in each classroom, there's 30 some odd people. Each child comes from different backgrounds, different family experiences, different beliefs. They're sharing those beliefs with you, whether directly or indirectly. You are being um, influenced by educators, teachers. A lot of these teachers don't have children themselves. A lot of them just graduated from college. They only took a job as a teacher because they didn't know what the hell they really wanted to do in life. And so it's not like they actually care about their job you know what i mean so it's like you know there's different influences that are being poured into the kid and then they come home and they're having to contend with the values of the parents you know and, and the fighting of the parents and all sorts of things that are going on at home and it just becomes an absolute mess the the public school system and the kind of centralization thereof has i think been more detrimental to society and to family life in particular uh, than the way it was before, where you had the one-room schoolhouse or people um, who, a simpler time mm-hmm. where you, as a boy, learned the trade of your dad and you did the same job your dad did, who did the same job as 
his dad before him who did the same job as his dad before them. You know, we could argue that, you know, prior to the industrial revolution, it was harder for society. It was harder for people and, you know, harder for this and harder for that. But at least you can see through various uh, uh, means that at least people were seemingly happier. At least people were, you know, had their wit about them. Whether you look through any family photo album, whether you look at the black and white photos, like I mentioned earlier of the of the photographer from Florida, right. whether you look at letters that were written um, from young men to their lady friends uh, during the Civil War and during the World War One, uh, the way that they wrote, the way that they expressed themselves, the kind of things that they experienced in battle. You see true masculinity, but yet you see this kind of poetic way in which they spoke. It was just a much more dignified person than the kind of short form communication we see in the social media age. And so, again, there's there's ways that we can compare and contrast what life looked like before the centralization of public school versus what it looks like after. Hmm. I have to stand corrected on that one because I definitely. My example, when I said that was like everybody I known that has came up in the um, public school system, you know, I rebelled. My parents were, you know, great examples for me. And, you know, they raised me to the best of their ability and, you know, what I would consider the right way. And they were like great examples for me. So, but I still <clears throat> rebelled and like, you know, ran around with my hood rat friends at a point when I, in my, um, <laughs> In my teens, <laughs> and, you know, yeah. got influenced to, you know, get a whole bunch of tattoos, become a rapper, and, you know, go down the path that I went down in, in life. And only to come back to, now I think more so like my dad. But my dad is still a Democrat and a liberal, though, and I'm not so much. And I'm not as religious as my mom and dad because I feel like you can be indoctrinated into into a religion too based on like where you're where you're from and uh who your family is and um I haven't came to a place in my life where I've this is a whole nother conversation but I feel like it's like a lot of religions and I feel like uh, maybe that was the original a propaganda machine and way to control people. But like I said, that's a hope we ain't got to go down. Huh? You, you say religion was the original propaganda machine? Yeah. That was the first like, uh, way of policing ideas and to get people to act and be a certain way and con control people. In yeah. my opinion, religion was definitely a, a means of, of controlling people. Um, or, or it was used uh, as such especially the Catholic church. But that again is why you had um, like the uh, reformation with people like John Calvin and Martin Luther who um, rebelled against the, you know, state using religion to control people. Um, because when you actually read the Bible um, in its truest interpretation, you realize like, well, no, this is actually about uh, an individual's personal relationship with God, not, using it as a bludgeon, uh, to control society. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. Um, and, and I think there's, there's truth to what you're saying, but I think oftentimes people try to use that to discount God or, mm -hmm. or Christ or Christianity altogether. Mm -hmm. Um, a thing can be used 
for harm, but that doesn't necessarily make that thing um, inherently bad. You know, right. I can use a hammer to bash somebody's head in. That doesn't mean that hammers are in themselves a, you know, a bad thing. Terrible sure. analogy, but I think no, you get I my definitely, point. I definitely get the point. But, you know, I definitely believe in God and uh, higher power and stuff like that, but it's just uh, my upbringing in the church. You know, just mm-hmm. seeing the whole theatrical side of it, like I remember, and again, I don't want to go down the religion tangent, but I remember like going to my church, like up the street, and my pastor had a certain way he conveyed his message. It was, it was a certain theatrical thing about how he talked, and uh, and I, I mean, uh, and I uh, can I get an amen and all this stuff, you know? Yeah. And it was always entertaining, you know. And then it didn't seem a, real. It didn't. It didn't seem real when I went to another church and their mm-hmm. pastor did the exact same thing and said the exact mm-hmm. same thing. And I went to another church and it was the exact same thing. And I watch an evangelist preacher on, on, on TV and it's the exact same mannerisms and that they turn on when it's sermon time and stuff. And I'm just like something in me. It was yeah. just like, what, what like a performance? Why is, yeah, why is this such a performance and what are they selling? Right. But that doesn't mean I don't believe in God and all that stuff. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that makes me want to ask you about a total other thing that I don't know if you want to talk about. Um, you can ask me whatever you want. What are your thoughts? I'll make a statement and I'll ask you a question. But what are your thoughts on the whole Israel-Palestine situation and the way um, I know it's a very complicated issue, mm-hmm. but the thing that rubs me the wrong way about it, I understand as much as I can both sides, but it seems I see a lot of people getting canceled for supporting one side over the other. And I don't understand why it's such an agenda by everybody in power in America to support uh, one side over the other, whether it's for so-called religious reasons or, uh, you know, the powers that be want this side to win reasons or whatever, or... um. It's just to me like, okay, when I, when, when, like I'm, I'm new to all this political stuff, right? But Mm -hmm. I look at interesting situations and I ask myself questions. October 7th, uh, Hamas attacks Israel, right? And I'll try to say this as fast as I can. Um, most of the world looks at that event as, um, Oh, this is the start of a terror. Like this terrorist terrorist attack is the start of the conflict between Palestine and Israel. They look at it through that lens and like, how dare uh, the Palestinians attack uh, the sovereignty of Israel? And they're they're terrible. Mm -hmm. They're terrorists and stuff like this. And um, so I see that, and I'm like, and I've been to Israel and Jerusalem and stuff. Um, and I understand it's the Holy Land. And my perception of it was this is the same Israel from biblical times and stuff like that, which is wrong. Um, I learned that 
Israel was established in 1948, or was it 47, mm-hmm. somewhere around that, and uh, 1948, I believe. And before that, in recorded history, it was Palestine. If you look at every, any map mm-hmm. from those time periods, it was Palestine. You know, the Ottoman Empire, um, it was a British colony. You know, Brit, 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 the Brits owned the land, but the Palestinians lived there, and the Jews lived there in small numbers as they did in a whole bunch of nations because they was in exile for a long time and they didn't have their own place to call their own and they were persecuted in some of the communities that they lived in and other places and stuff, Germany being one of them. And uh, after the Holocaust, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the UN was formed and they decided to, um, along with the Brits, decided to give... Palestine to Israel. Am I correct? Yeah. And uh, pretty much the Nekba happened. And from my understanding, that was the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. And they pushed a whole bunch of Palestinians out to form their new nation and state, which is, you know, modern day Israel, which is, and this all happened not even 80 years ago, you know. Right. Which seems to me like is the original sin of the whole conflict. You know, these people took their plight and lobbied and gained leverage to take this land and almost do something very similar to another group of people that happened to them, you know, and try to erase the history. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's not legal to speak about the Nekba in Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was pretty much just colonization, just like, you know, America came over here and got rid of the Indians to a, a large extent and other colonized things, you know, countries and territories in the world and stuff like that. And um, the Arabs or the Palestinians just didn't agree with their land being taken and are to this day kind of rebelling against that and fighting back against that. And the Hamas attack was kind of a, it was, it was bad. You know, people shouldn't die. Terrorism is bad, but it was just in my understanding, a continuation of the conflict that's been going on since 1948 and beforehand Mm -hmm. they like lived together you know, in kind of, you know, way more harmony than they do now. I've seen rabbis talk about it. And, um, you know, the the Orthodox um, Jewish people, they don't believe that Israel should be a state. I could talk about this forever, but I'm asking you, like, what is your view on it? And, um, yeah. Well, um, I don't claim to be a, a geopolitical expert by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but you know, as far as a conflict between Israel and, and Palestine, I mean, this thing dates back, you know, thousands of years. I mean, heck even, <laughs> you know, Goliath and, and David, you know, I mean, that this was for all intents and purposes, a battle between Israel and, and Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, this is a conflict that has been going on for hundreds of years. And, um, you know, as, as far as the, um, kind of cancelization you speak of, uh, you know, whenever people stick their neck out and take a stand on one side or the other, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's actually quite interesting. You know, you either accuse of being anti-Semitic or Islamophobic, depending on which side you land on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when it comes to Hamas attacking Israel, you know, they made a calculated decision to do that. And if you're going to if you're going to deliver a blow like that, you better be ready to deal with the consequences that follow. So, you know, they made their decision. And, you know, I, I don't I don't agree with any aid to their defense um, uh, because, you know, they made their own bed right. when it comes to Israel. I don't believe that I, I don't believe in this kind of default of America should support Israel. Mm. Um, and the reason I don't I don't agree with that is because, you know, America, we have our own battles to fight here. You know, we have a border crisis that we need to get under control. Oh, yeah. We have a government muck. We have corruption in our government. We have a lot of things here to where we have no business playing world police at this juncture. Um, and not only that, when you look at Israel's military, they have one of the strongest militaries in the world. So, so let them fight their own battles. Right. Um, and I don't understand this impulse for America as if we have this kind of moral high ground to be getting involved in a conflict that has been going on since America even existed mm. or before long before America even existed. Um, and I know that people like to say that, well, you know, as Christians, we're, in, we're instructed to be supportive of Israel. Well, you know, if you get into the doctrine and theology of that, um, it's, it's actually talking about something different than what, how people interpret it. Uh, but you know, I digress, um, long story short, um, I, I, again, this is coming from somebody who's, who's, uh, not very well versed when it comes to geopolitical, um, activities, uh, from my lay position. Um, I don't see how it is wise for America to get involved on one side or the other. I think that America should stay out of it and focus on our own issues. Um, but I do I do sympathize with people who say that, well, you know, America has to get involved because to the extent that, you know, Hamas gets the upper hand or Palestine gets the upper hand and begin to dominate that region of the world and then expand their power abroad. Because, you know, when you look at their uh, their doctrine and their theology and their agenda, uh, they're very much for eradicating the infidel Mm. um, with no mercy. Um, So they too have their kind of own globalist agenda. And Mm. so we should step in the way of that lest it comes to our borders. So, you know, I get people who, who, who argue that. Um, So again, it's for me, if I'm being completely honest with you, um, when I, when I look at what I said and I stand by that, I can't, I can't, come up with a a good enough argument to um rebuff the person who uh believes what i just said which is you know we should we should stop it in its tracks lest it comes to our borders i don't i don't know that i have a good enough argument for that you know against that right now so i tend to 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 kind of stay stay out of it altogether um yeah but yeah religious from a religious point of view um you know the Bible does talk about, you know, 
God blessing those who bless Israel. There's that in the third. And, um, and, and, you know, for that reason, really, I that's guess in I the, support, that's in the Bible. Yeah. It's in, it's, it's in the old Testament, but, okay. um, yeah. So, um, but, but I, I, and, you know, someone can correct me if I'm wrong on the theology of this, but, you know, I think that it's more or less talking about, um, God's remnant, uh, more so than a physical region in the world um, right. that we call Israel. Uh, I think that's more talking about a people, um, not just quote unquote ethnic Jews, but God's remnant, namely those who um, those who put their faith and trust in uh, Yeshua, the descendant of David, mm-hmm. um, who God has called people to himself, called the nations to himself through, uh, because, you know, the Bible ta- you know teaches that Christ is the only name given under heaven by which man can be saved. There's no other way. Uh, Muhammad can't do it. Hinduism can't do it. Like no other means that you can get to God, but through Christ. And so to the extent that a person puts their faith and trust in Christ, they become what we call God's remnant. Okay. And so, you know, the Bible talks about, you know, and Christ is no longer slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, for we're all one in Christ. And so God's remnant is anyone who puts their faith in him, be they Jew or 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 Gentile. Um, and so, you know, when it when it talks about, you know, uh, blessing Israel, I, I think it's more or less talking about God's remnant more so than a physical location uh, on the planet. But that's, you know, right. That, that's a was... whole debate in itself. The Israel of today so, is not the Israel that the Bible is referring to, I wouldn't think. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, I guess that gets really complicated. It's just it's just interesting to me because I've never seen a terrorist attack happen and a huge swath of the world go protest about saving them, you know? And mm. I don't know much about Islam and like what they believe what they believe or what they're doctrine is or anything like that but um i just think that whole that whole situation is really it's really tragic and really interesting mm-hmm. at, the, at the same oh, time oh for sure for sure I, I, you know it's a lot of there's a lot of arabic people that live here in germany they they kind oh, of exactly. yeah it's it's similar to like uh you know hispanic people coming to america Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a lot of Arabic people. What kind of jobs do they typically take? Uh, I mean, I I don't I can only speak to what I've seen them doing, and they, a lot of them come here open businesses. They, mm-hmm. like on every corner in the city, it's like a either a shisha shop, a shisha bar, or people sit down and smoke those little flavored tobacco things, or mm-hmm. like hookah. A, yeah, hookah. They call it shisha here, and um. They open like little little shops, like little uh, little kiosks, little um, donor donor shops, like these little Turkish food shops and stuff. Or they they're the ones that have the cleaners or barber shops, mm-hmm. hair salons, stuff like that. You know, they all get money to open businesses when they come here, and they from all, the government. Yeah, the government helps them out a lot when oh, they wow. come over here. Yeah. So they, and they, you know, they say 
you know, I have no problem against Arabs and whatever, but, you know, a lot of Germans are called racist because they're kind of concerned about how many, because you like, like you, like you said, Germany is really docile, like as a country, like they're super like non-confrontational about a lot of issues and stuff. And they're very liberal about a lot of issues and stuff and they don't want any conflict. So we let in the most refugees out of anybody in Europe. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, a lot of them say like Germany is going to be an Arabic country soon in the next, in the, in the near future, because you know, they're in their culture, they have a lot of kids, you know, you like, it's nothing for like an Arabic family to have like seven, eight kids. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, um, Germans don't have that many kids. They might have one or two and it's less and less. Right. You know, so most of the time you go out, you see more. I wonder what the demographic. Like I said, most most of the time you go out, you see more Arabic through. people than uh, than Germans. I wonder what the demographic balance is right now in in Germany, um, Arab versus versus German. Who who is who is the current chancellor in Germany? I don't know. They just changed. Um, it was Angela Merkel for a long time, but now it's some new new face but i don't i don't really know his name i don't really pay much attention to german politics Mm -hmm. nothing nothing really happens here like they keep a lot of their stuff like under wraps you know they don't really Mm -hmm. broadcast all their shortcomings like uh like america does so how do you in germany get like access to so would you say that you have more I guess news or information coming in from the United States than from Germany. Oh, definitely. Or is it just a matter of what you look into yourself? No, everybody in Germany knows more about America than they know about what's going on in Germany. And I would say that that's for interesting a lot that of you places say that in the because world. yeah, that's interesting that you say that because I was talking to some friends from Canada and they were saying the exact same thing. That, that they know more about American politics than they know about Canadian politics or who's in, you know, who's in charge of this or who's in charge of that. They know more about America than, than Canada. So oh. that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's why I was like, I, I'm over here looking from, I got a perspective from the outside looking in just like most people mm-hmm. in Europe and in other countries, because America pushes out their politics like a big reality show. You know, it's always something crazy mm-hmm. happening, especially since Trump, because, you know, every word he spoke was like, oh, shit, what did Trump just say? What did Trump just do? So, you right. know, he was the topic. Of, he was just as famous in Germany. I can I can speak to as he was in America. Like everybody knows who Trump is, has a very strong opinion about him, whether it's for him or against him, people lost relationships for supporting him over here. Family members don't speak to each other because of their their American political stances and stuff like that. Like, it's really crazy. I've gotten into arguments with people about Trump over here, and they, it has nothing to do with them. What was uh, Angela Merkel's position on Trump? Do you know? Just that he was like a buffoon who didn't know, know like what he was talking about or what he was doing. Like when he was in office, him in America was just like the laughing stock of, of Europe. Like they only talked about him to make fun of, you know, something America put out about him. 
and how good of a job did Angela Merkel do as as chancellor? Was uh, she, she was like, how, was chancellor she, for like, a long what time. Was her, what was? Uh, sorry, she was chancellor for a long time, and everybody she's very, well, she's very well loved by 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 Germans. That that's interesting though, because what was her position with the onslaught of Arabs moving into Germany? Was she against it? Was she neutral on it? Was she? She was for it. Like all for it. So that's interesting, though, because like, how is it that on the one hand, the German people um, have an issue with the influx of Arabs moving in, but yet they love the woman who was all for it and was a position, you know, in a position of leadership? Well, you got to think like about a, like the German mentality, like they, you know, Hitler's from here, you know, mm-hmm. they. You know, the Holocaust happened here. Um, they don't want no problems. You know what I'm saying? Like, they, they're they super liberal, you know? It's still a Nazi party here, but they don't get really support like that. But, you know, the fact that Germany doesn't really have an army. Like, they have an army, but it's really passive. Like, they don't even have, like, they're not really equip, equipped for battle. They're like, a support army and stuff and people can serve or not you can do like a few months to a year like you don't it's not really like this is not a conflict country you know like everybody 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 was cool with it when she decided to let so many people in but and and the people who who weren't don't didn't want to be the person speaking out against it you know what i'm saying they'll talk about it at home and, and while they're drinking their little tea and eating their bread or whatever but nobody's gonna make a political stance and say uh and speak out against a people because they don't want to be perceived how um oh shit here come the nazis again you know they persecuting another another group of people you know that's a very interesting thing it it, it reminds me of a story I heard a few years ago on PBS where there was a white man, older white man who um, came out of a store to see his car being stolen by three young black men Mm -hmm. and they drove away in the car and he called 911 because he didn't know what else to do. So he called 911 and he told them, my car was just stolen and it was three young African-American men. I hesitated to call the police, but I didn't know who else to call. Please don't send the police to find them. Mm. Send the EMT or, you know, send the ambulance or someone like that, but please don't hurt these young men. And so this is this kind of mentality. Once again, that I think is shaped by indoctrination where you're afraid to do what's right or to speak out, even if it's, you know, you're speaking from a place of honor or genuine concern because you will be labeled a racist or whatever the case may be. So you are willing to have your belongings and your, in your property stolen or even be shot at or, or harmed in some way. So long as you aren't accused of being a racist or a Nazi or whatever the case may be. Right. And so I think that's that's a very troubling thing where we are um, 
we our arm is kind of twisted behind our back uh, to be able to acquiesce to this kind of faux reality um, in pursuit of something that's that's you know that's not real. So long as you know, what I mean, certain other people get their way, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because I was listening to you earlier, where you said that German people are accused by Arabs of being racist because there's certain German people who are concerned about the uh, the influx of Arabian people who are moving in. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is a common tactic that's used where I want to call you this this uh, pejorative. So as to neutralize you, mm-hmm. because to the extent that you're neutralized, it then allows me to to do more of what I'm trying to do. Right. You know what I mean? I want to, be able to do my dirt in public. And to the extent that you call me out for it, I'm going to call you some pejorative and that will silence you long enough to keep on doing my dirt in, in public. This thing happens all over the world. And it's happening right now in the United States as we speak. Yeah, it's the same thing that's happening uh, with the with the border and New York and Mm-hmm. Florida busing uh all the all the um asylum seekers to mm-hmm. Chicago and New York when um New York was like come one come all you know we we want you to come <laughs> right. here you know we yeah. we want your culture Poor, we're, we're gonna trodden, yeah we're gonna yeah. house you we're gonna protect you we're gonna take care of you not we're not gonna be like those bad Republican yeah, states who say <laughs> yeah. who say close the border and stuff like that because they just racist. But right. you know, when they was saying we want the border, we want more help at the border and we need to close the border because we can't handle all these people. And um, you know, we're right at the border and you know, I think it was a brilliant idea and strategy for them to start bussing people to these sanctuary states mm-hmm. who was talking all yeah. this shit for, you, you know, said not you're a, a sanctuary. Yeah. You said you're the sanctuary and you inviting them. So right. here they are. And now they like, Oh, this is a national crisis. We can't, <laughs> we can't handle these people. We want you to come to right. the States, but please don't come here. Eric Adams, and, you know, like shut the fuck up. I'm sorry. <laughs> For my language, but talking all that shit. And then right, when the right. shit hit the fan, you like, oh, now I get it. But yeah. it's too late now. It's too so, late. yeah, DeSantis and, and Abbott, they call their bluff. Yeah. So. And uh, they were sending these people to Martha's Vineyard, too, where Obama live. They oh, heard yeah. up and kick those people out of there. Yeah, it's all you can be, you know, you can be you can virtue signal your ass off. And talk all <laughs> the mess in the world, but when like it really hits home, then you kind of have to agree with people who are looking at it, you know, from a perspective of what it's, what the outcome is going to be, you know, what 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 is this going to turn into in the future? You know, you of course everybody, you know, you want to help people, but you know, do you have the resources to help two hundred thousand people who come to your city in the span of one right. year? You know, no, you don't. And then you want to cry to the federal government to give you give you more money. And they say no. And then you act like I think Eric Adams trying to act like it's a racist thing that Biden is uh, refusing to, like, give him money for that. Right. Like the whole sanctuary city thing is like we're not going to assist the government in kicking illegal immigrants out. So you're not going to assist the government. 
and like protecting the borders and stuff, but you're gonna ask the government to give you money to 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 house and 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 feed the people that that you don't you don't want to assist them with. What sense does that make? You know. Yeah. <clears throat> But yeah, that's the kind of thing. But Germany, they they don't let up on um on letting people in. Like the public transportation system is so backed up over here because it's so many <laughs> immigrants coming over here all the time, and they gotta travel with the public transportation system, and like all the trains are backed up. I don't, it doesn't affect me because I I drive, but a lot of people don't. Yeah, but that's not neither wow. here. I wanted to ask you a few more questions. I don't know how much more time you got. I probably got like five minutes. Okay, uh, let's get to this one last thing. It was it's a it's a movie coming out that I don't know if you you know about. It's called um, the American Society of Magical Negroes. <laughs> you heard about this? <laughs> I, I heard about it. Yeah, I heard it from. Uh, from from Anthony Brian Logan. Oh yeah, I saw him talking about morning. it. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I, I saw that this morning. Um, but I didn't get to watch the trailer for it. But I heard about the synopsis of it. And um, who who is producing this film? Do you know? Uh, let me see who's producing this film. Uh, but I, it's a feature film that's gonna be in theaters. Like it's a real has it already movie? been released? Because I heard I heard that it went viral. So I was I was wondering what went viral. Was it the trailer that went viral? Was well, the trailer the actual the trailer went viral. Maybe I can play it in the program. Let me see if I can if I can play it. Bear with me here for a second. Pretty ridiculous plot to the movie, though. And what a name. Can you see that? Uh, I can see a part of it, but I can't hear it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see it. It's a vertical video. Can you hear it? You probably can't hear it, though, because I, I can't, can't hear, hear it. it. Okay, let me try one more thing. I will step on through a mic here. It's going to take too much for me to get the video in there. I should have queued it up before. But the premise of the the, the movie is just like um, it's a group of ma- magical Negroes <laughs> that uh, actors, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, the main character is like a mixed kid. But the it's, and it's a lot of prominent black actors in it, I think. But the whole premise is like they these magical Negroes exist to placate to white people to keep them happy um so they don't become the most dangerous thing the world have ever seen and that's a, a, a angry white person 
And like it's a scene that pops up where this this white person is about to get mad about something or he's about to be sad about something and a meter pops up next to him and it has like white tears on it and it's like a meter that's like kind of going up and the dude has to kind of step into the situation and do some magic trick and like make the the white person feel comfortable again and stuff like that and it's like a love story involved but the name and the 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 premise of the movie is just a lot for me and i don't know like <laughs> what they're trying to do with this movie and what studio picked it up to put it in like to give it a theatrical release like the whole thing was like a key and peel skit like a few years ago i don't know if you right. ever saw that but the um the, the thing about movies like this and, and and they come out ever so often um i know barack obama he has his uh film production company called higher ground or something like that which releases all of their films exclusively on netflix um they just dropped one Jay-Z, right? yeah 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 jay-z uh, found himself in the film production uh, industry um he's releasing if not if not already a film where Jesus is black and he's smoking weed and all this other nonsense. <laughs> so, I mean, ever so often, you know, um, you, they will release these films and, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where you are kind of normalization or normalizing, uh, in this case, the beliefs and feelings and, and, um, sensations that, a lot of folks, unfortunately, in black culture have, mm-hmm. um, namely that, you know, black people, we've always saved democracy. We have always saved, you know, uh, the world and we are kings and queens and this that, and the third, um, to the extent that you can keep people in this kind of stupor, um, you can always count on them to assist you with whatever political program you wish to push. And I know that seems far-fetched, but again, this is the point of a lot of entertainment. This is the point of a lot of these films and stuff that, that get released. Um, as I said earlier, a lot of what we see and how we see reality is shaped by what we see in entertainment. A lot of people, for example, their only idea of what slavery was like is, is comes from what they saw in the film roots. Right. Not from actual, I mean, they have the, uh, I forget what they called them, but they, what was it called? There there was an actual name for it, but, you know, some journalists actually interviewed real slaves and they even got some of these interviews on camera where you had slaves, I think back in the 1930s and 40s, who were talking about their experience on the plantations and all the things and it's it's a night and day difference uh from what those interviews revealed versus what we actually see in roots that's not to say that slavery was this you know great time that everybody was having um but again a lot of a lot of what we saw in films like roots were you know there were liberties taken Mm -hmm. and um again so as you fast forward to today whether you're talking about uh jordan pill's film get out or even, you know, uh, this film, The Magical Negro, and every film, film in between, which kind of reinforces this notion that, you know, um, white people need us or 
that um, everybody wants to be us or whatever the case may be. It kind of it kind of I think it has the same kind of intoxicating effect as alcohol. Mm. Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, I have a friend who is a missionary, he and his wife, and they're serving in uh, Southeast Asia. Mm hmm. And I was asking him about his experiences there and and the people that he's met and all this. And he said, you know, it's interesting that everybody is drunk and high. He says it's hard to get people to work because, you know, their whole strategy is to introduce uh, like the free market to these people so that they can learn how to get on their own two feet without depending on the state, without depending on the government. And to also share the gospel with them because we're trying to give you work ethic, but we're also trying to give you ethics mm-hmm. and um, and work is a big part of that. And it's, and we're teaching them how to start businesses and do these things. But, you know, we, we're having a hard time because everybody just choose to be drunk and high. And as it turns out, the government incentivizes the drunkenness and the uh, highness and the inebriation of its people. Because the government has a vested interest in keeping the people uh, intoxicated and thus uh, debilitated enough to take care of themselves, to fend for themselves. Mm. And so if you think about it, um, if I can tell you on the one hand that you are oppressed and that the white man doesn't want you to get ahead, I can tell you that on one hand, that kills your spirit. But if I tell you at the same time that you're a king and you're a queen and everybody wants to be you, and everybody's jealous of you, that gives you this kind of sense of entitlement. So not only are you not putting in the same kind of work ethic as your non-black neighbor because you feel like what's the use you also feel that you're entitled to reaping the benefits of living housing uh you know all the things that go along with it because you're entitled because you're a king and you're a queen Mm. and so again that i I get that that sounds like a far-fetched kind of stretch between a film like this and what it is i'm talking about but what i'm simply trying to communicate is how films, music, a lot of these things reinforce the ethos, the pathology and the mores of culture. And it, and it kind of reinforces and validates a lot of the preconceived notions and mythology that black culture has that keeps them ever in this kind of chaotic, dysfunctional state. I'm hoping that makes sense. It definitely it definitely, definitely, definitely makes sense, and I totally agree. Um, you mentioned roots a lot in this. Uh, uh, I wanted to ask you about that too. We say you ain't got much time, but I, I, I looked into the whole roots thing because I remember roots, and you know, like Kunta Kinte, and and I, and I recently um, came across the fact that most of his depiction in the book and the television series was plagiarized or the book was plagiarized mm-hmm. and it was, um, it was an exaggeration of the experience of slavery. And I think he was even quoted as saying like his people needed, uh, a depiction of slavery to like live by or something. I can't remember his like exact quote, but he pretty much admitted that he like, of course, slavery was a horrible thing, you know what I'm saying? But he made, like, roots, and his depiction of it is, like, every black person's idea of what slavery was, mm-hmm. you know, even to this day. 
I think people right. think that was more of a documentary than like a a fictional <laughs> story, you know. Yeah, yeah, we do that with 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 every Hollywood film though. We take it as as gospel instead of realizing no, they they probably took liberties with this and that goes for right or left, you know. Yeah. Um that. both both sides do it really. But yeah. Yeah, I feel like we could talk about these issues forever, but I'll let you go, man. I appreciate, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to me about what we talked about, and I hope we can uh, do this again, man. Yeah, for sure. I definitely would love to come back um, and and continue the conversation because, as you said, um, I mean, it sounds like you had more questions, and I know I had a lot more uh, to say on the subjects I was talking about, especially since... um, I know and I realize that what I was saying with the civil rights movement and stuff like that, um, a lot of it is stuff that people have never heard before or never really thought about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm contending with um, 40, 50 years of enshrined and indoctrinated, uh, concluded fact in a lot of people's eyes. Like, how dare you tell me that Martin Luther King isn't this great hero? How dare you tell me that the civil rights movement wasn't the greatest thing that ever happened in America. Mm-hmm. I understand that. And, um, but again, everything that I've done as well as research, well documented, um, you know, people can learn more about, um, everything that it is I'm talking about with our film, uncle Tom too, which is on Amazon. It's on voodoo and a couple of other streaming platforms. Um, and, uh, we're going to come out with a part three, uh, within the next year or so. Oh, yeah. um, where we go into the history of what we call black culture or the, or the myth of blackness. And, um, and um, yeah, so got a lot of, got a lot of work coming down the pipes. So the myth of about blackness. That. No, everything you're talking about is everything I'm interested in. And like I said, I got a million more questions for you, especially <laughs> since you said like the myth of blackness and, uh, I would assume that's kind of about like where black culture came from and where we think it mm-hmm. came from and wh- where it really came yep. from, which is like redneck white people that, that we, mm-hmm. that, you know, we came up around and adopted their, their degenerate culture and stuff like that. It, am I, am I going down the right path and stuff? That's, that's like an eighth of it, but yes. Um, uh, looking at it too, like how, Prior to the 1960s, there was really no distinguishable difference between black cult, what we call black culture and how most white folks were living um, in terms of if you look at income, if you look at family sizes, if you look at, you know, values and things people cared about. There's really no dis- the only differences weren't so much black and white. The differences were regional. Mm. Uh, that is to say that most Southerners, black and white, agreed on most things, most Northerners, black and white, agreed on most things. It wasn't until in the seventies, uh, sixties, and seventies where you had the emergence of black exploitation films, mm. which uh, populated or popularized, I should say, uh, you know, thug culture, uh, drug selling and dealing, and Six. pimping and hoeing and all the things. Right. Um, you saw this kind of push of black assertion james brown say it loud i'm black and i'm proud black power is on the third where blacks began to uh embrace 
uh, African culture, although it wasn't really African culture, it was just a concoction of a bunch of mess. Mm. You, you, you saw black folks naming their children all sorts of what they thought was was African names, but wasn't really African names, or just coming up with names out of nowhere. Uh, again, as, as insisting on their blackness because they wanted to rebel against what they saw as Eurocentrism and and white culture. Mm. And so we're looking at the origins of that. Where did this this fad come from? Where did this trend come from? Um, so yeah, it's a myth of blackness. What you, you know, black culture was made in a Hollywood basement. It's not real. Wow. It's not real. Cause it, it came seemingly out of nowhere. Um, so we're going to be looking at and dissecting that. So I hope y'all put hip hop in there a little bit too, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they going to be put hip hop got a big responsibility in the, the degenerate right. modern day, uh, culture of black people. But yeah, For sure. Like I said, I don't want to hold you up, man. I appreciate you. Do you want to like tell people where they can find you, like your uh, social media handles or anything you want to say in yeah. closing? Yeah, you can find me at the at Chad O Jackson on uh, I'm on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. And um, apart from that, man, just uh, uh, working on some films. We're we're coming out with a film called Comrade Yuri about Yuri Bezmenov, uh, the KGB agent who defected and tried to sound the alarm, alarm about Soviet um, influence and American culture. Mm. He uh, educated us on what ideological subversion is and how a lot of what we think is reality isn't reality at all. It's all, uh, a lot of it is indoctrination and programming through entertainment, through news, this, that, and the third. Um, he was able to really articulate that um, in a very profound way. Um, oh. So we're, we're making a film about him. Um, so yeah, I, I, I basically keep to myself and stay quiet. I do some stuff on, like I said, YouTube and IG, but if you're interested in learning more about me, uh, you can find me on those places. Okay, man. Well, we appreciate you and uh, I'll let you get out of here. And uh, good luck in all your endeavors, and let's do this again in a few months or when your when your next project comes out. Definitely, I, right. I I enjoyed it. Me too, man. All right, peace.